Hi, my name is Carly Hamilton, and I am this year's Editor-in-Chief of The Gator. As we enter the second year living during the COVID-19 pandemic, The Gator will be hosting a podcast series with community members focused on vaccines, equity in vaccine distribution, and more topics relating to the pandemic. Today, I spoke with Dr. Kathy Taylor, a Broomer parent. Dr. Taylor is a primary care physician who sees patients in Boston. In today's podcast episode, Dr. Taylor shared insight on different types of vaccines, how vaccine rollout works, and vaccine hesitancy. What what is a vaccine? You know, every year we talk about getting the flu shot and why we do that annually. Um, But how does the COVID-19 vaccine or vaccines differ from that? Okay, so vaccines in general are used to prevent um, primarily infectious diseases. And there are a variety of different types of vaccines using different technologies and um, different strategies to help prevent infectious disease. Um, You know, I think just to put it into perspective, remember that just a couple of generations ago, life expectancy was much shorter, partly because people died of lots of different infectious diseases. And many children didn't even get out of childhood or infancy because of infectious diseases. So when we think about how, um, about health in, in today's world and our life expectancy, I think we take for granted how much vaccines have actually changed the trajectory of, of, of our lives and how much um, they really have led to much more significant life expectancy and decreased childhood death, et cetera. And um, I think, you know, we've sort of just, we just take it for granted that that's, that that's the way life is, but it really wasn't that way even a few generations ago. So primarily vaccines work on uh, preventing uh, infectious diseases and um, they work by stimulating our body's immune system so that we will then recognize that infectious, di- infectious disease. And then if we are actually exposed to it, we then have the immune uh, response to try to prevent uh, us from actually getting the infection at all or to mitigate how severe the infection would be. So we may actually get a slight infection possibly, but because our immune system has sort of been able to develop a response before we saw the infection, because of the immunization, we will likely get a much less severe case of the disease. So the new COVID vaccines use uh, a relatively newer technology, particularly the first two, the Pfizer and the Moderna, called mRNA vaccine technology, uh, which has not been something we've used before. Um, but because they can be produced relatively quickly, it was felt that that might be a good candidate for the COVID vaccine since we needed something very quickly because we're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, the newest vaccine that's gotten emergency use authorization in the United States, which is the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen uh, vaccine, uses a slightly different technology. Um, it's a, um, it uses um, 
a viral vector. That's the technology, uh, what, what the technology is called. And I'm certainly happy to go into a little bit of detail about both of those if you'd like, um, but I don't know how much detail you want at this, at this stage. Yeah, it would be great if you could expand upon those a little bit. Okay, great. So the the first two vaccines that that got emergency use authorization from the FDA in the United States were the uh, Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, and they both use very similar um, mRNA vaccine technology. So the way that it works is a piece of synthetic messenger RNA. Um, which is genetic material that gives instructions to a cell on how to make proteins. So what happens is that you get the vaccine with this piece of synthetic messenger RNA. The messenger RNA then gives instructions to your cells to produce a protein that is part that is similar to the uh, spike protein on the coronavirus. Uh, once your body produces that spike protein after getting the instructions from the messenger RNA, it presents uh, the spike protein on the surface of the cells, and then your immune system in, um, interacts with that and develops an antibody response and also a, a cellular, uh, an immune cell response so that you can then know how to fight the coronavirus based on um, the immune system sort of recognizing it. And then if you are then in the future exposed to the virus, you will, your immune system will say, we know what that is and we know how to fight it. And the spike protein is 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 um, the little protein that you've seen the pictures of the coronavirus with the little uh, spikes off of it, and that is the protein that the immune system recognizes, and therefore it can uh, then kill off any virus that you are potentially exposed to. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which was just uh, got emergency use authorization in, I believe, the beginning of March. Um, in the United States is a viral vector vaccine. What it does is it uses the, an adenovirus, which is a common, common cold or a gastrointestinal illness virus that we are, is in our environment uh, quite often. It is an, an inactivated uh, virus. So you, they are not, you are not getting an injection of, of a live virus. And inserted into the adenovirus, the, the vaccine developers have inserted some uh, double-stranded DNA, um, inactivated. Um, and the, the double-stranded DNA has um, genetic materials um, uh, for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, a spike protein um, of the virus. And then this modified adenovirus that enters your cells, and then the cells read the genetic instructions of this um, of this modified adenovirus with this uh, genetic material for the spike protein, and then the cells, similar to the other vaccine, then will produce um, the spike proteins 
again, present that to on the surface of the cell and your immune system reacts to it, again, develops antibodies and um, a cellular response, um, immune response. So again, so that in the future, if your body encounters the COVID virus, COVID-19 virus, it will recognize it and say, we know how to attack this. So with the vaccines, um, you've explained very well what they do for the individual who is vaccinated. Um, when it comes to interactions after someone has been vaccinated, mm -hmm. they still need to take precautions wearing masks, social distancing um, with other people who are vaccinated or with other people who have not yet been vaccinated? That's a great question. Um, and of course, you know, the, the exciting thing about uh, COVID-19 is everything is new. So if it wasn't sort of so life altering and um, potentially deadly, it would be, um, you know, that we would we would find this even more fascinating. We, we find it quite fascinating because it's all brand new, but um, you have to, so everything we do, we're learning each week um, new things. But what the CDC has recommended and what the, the science has shown so far is that once you have been, uh, so for the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, once you, an individual has been received both vaccines, and for the Pfizer vaccine, it's uh, dose one on day one and then dose two, three weeks later. And for the Moderna, it's dose one on day one and dose two, four weeks later. Once you have received both vaccines, two weeks after the second vaccine, you are considered to have your full protection that you're going to have against the vaccine. Uh, for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I have read anywhere from two weeks after the, it's a single dose vaccine, anywhere from two weeks to four weeks after the single dose vaccine, you're, you're expected to have full protection um, as much as the vaccine is going to give to you. And the reason the guidance has been that, yes, you still need to wear a mask and wash your hands and keep your social distance, even if you've been vaccinated, is because what we don't know is whether the vaccinated person could actually get an exposure to COVID-19, actually be carry the, vac the, the virus or actually have a subclinical infection that then they could spread to another person. We will know more about that definitely over the next six months as more and more people get vaccinated and as they start to do studies on vaccinated people and whether they have actually spread it to other people. We just don't really know that information. And part of the reason we don't know the information is because that was not part of their study, their original study. Their original study was really to just see, is the vaccinated person protected from severe COVID-19 illness or hospitalization or, or infection in general? Um, now, I think that part of the public messaging, and I think the CDC has started to do this now, is the public messaging should be, listen, there's lots of benefits to the vaccine. One of which is you can now get together socially without a mask in a private space with a small group of other people who have been fully vaccinated or now are two to four weeks after their second vaccine or their initial, vac or their initial Johnson, Johnson vaccine. And I think that that's a very appealing thing and maybe motivating factor for people to become vaccinated. And the reason that that's acceptable is because 
now um, all the vaccinated people are protected against severe COVID infection or hospitalization or death um, to, the, to the best they can be from the vaccine. And even if those parties give COVID-19 back and forth to each other, all the parties are protected. Whereas if you are now interacting with other unvaccinated people, the concern is perhaps you could still spread the vaccine. You might be protected because you've been vaccinated, but the other people might not be. Um, and until we have herd immunity, and you may have heard what that, what that means, where it just means a certain critical amount of the population has been vaccinated, and so therefore the virus just has a lot of difficulty spreading um, in the community. Until we reach that point, we have to assume that if we're out in public, we are potentially, even if we're vaccinated, potentially able to spread it to unvaccinated people. So. That's perfect, thank you. You also mentioned um, that there are, you need two doses of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, but only one of the Johnson & Johnson. Um, could you explain why that is? You know, it's a good question and I, and I don't know exactly why. I do know that the second dose of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine really uh, sort of boosts the immune response. So you get a certain amount of immune response when the body recognizes that that spike protein that is manufactured by our cells uh, and the immune system says, oh, a new, a new protein that we need to develop an immune response to. And then when you present it again, the immune system is just primed and ready to really attack this spike protein. Um, and that just gets this little boost. I'm not exactly sure why the Johnson & Johnson vaccine at this stage is not felt to need a boost. Um, with the second vaccine, we may find that, that in fact, after a certain period of time, six months, a year, two years, five years, that our immune immunity and our immune response will wane um, and we might need booster for any of these vaccines. I think we're just going to be learning a lot more as time goes on, and it's just a, a field where there's just going to be a ton of study. Uh, to be honest with you, Carly, probably some of it has to do with just the study design. Remember, you know, we're we're doing these vaccine schedules completely based on the way things were done in the study, and and there's a good reason for that because that's sort of what was proven. It doesn't mean that there might not be another way to do it. It's just that at this point we feel compelled primarily, you know, I think the, the uh, public health uh, world and the medical world feels that we should stick to what was proven with the study. And uh, it'll be interesting to see as time goes on, they'll probably be looking at people for who, who for whatever reason only got one dose of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine and what happened with them. You know, were they protected enough? Um, and we'll, you know, we're going to learn a lot over the next year or two. Like you but said, primarily it's, it's, I think it's study design, mm -hmm. you know, and then once the study is make, made, you know, proof one way or the other, we're, we're following uh, the, the way the study was done just to get that proven mm -hmm. effect. So looking at the future, what do you uh, this vaccine development and this very fast turnaround will do for the future if, hopefully not anytime soon, there is another pandemic virus um, situation like this. 
You know, that, that's another great question. Um, I do think there's a lot of excitement in the research, the vaccine research community about mRNA vaccines, because there, even though this is these are the first mRNA vaccines to be used and you know, being manufactured and and used um, clinically, they've been under development and, and been researched for a number of years for a, a bunch of different viruses, including Ebola and Zika virus. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I do think that it's a technology that now that we have it, um, I think a lot of vaccine manufacturers are going to be interested in trying it for uh, new viruses that come on the horizon and perhaps for older viruses as well. Um, I mean, I think one thing that we're all a little cautious about is we know these viruses are extremely safe in the short term. You know, if you think about the development, when did they go into clinical trials? It was really last summer that the Pfizer and the Moderna went into clinical trials with humans. And so that's only, you know, six, seven, eight months of, of, of follow-up. Um, I think we have every reason to believe they're very safe in the short term and probably safe in the long term. But of course, with any new vaccine, any new medication, um, there's going to be lots of surveillance and follow-up. Um, to determine, you know, are there any downstream effects that we're that we need to be worried about, and that of course will influence how um, how much mRNA technology is used in the future as well. But I think there's a lot of excitement about it because vaccines can be manufactured much more quickly with the mRNA vaccines when you're using um, live viruses or attenuated um, killed viruses to develop vaccines, which is the way the flu shot is developed. It's a killed virus. It takes a piece of the, the flu virus, inactivates, it takes out its genetic material, uses the uh, protein coat of the influenza mm -hmm. um, virus to develop a vaccine. It just takes a long time because you have to kind of grow the vaccines and you have to do this technology. So it just takes a longer development. So transitioning more toward the vaccine rollout, um, uh -huh. How how has all of that worked? How does how is it determined who gets the vaccine first, um, and what role do medical professionals such as yourself play in that? Hmm. Oh, that's been an interesting topic and and taken up a lot of our energy lately. Um, but because it, this has been a worldwide and a um, national uh, crisis that's affected you know people all over the planet. Um, it is a lot of the vaccine um, rollout, development, rollout, um, planning has been done somewhat centrally. So think about, you know, from a federal government standpoint, the federal government decided that, you know, we're going to pay for this vaccine for, for every, everybody in our country. Um, and we're going to, we, in fact, we're going to fund these vaccine manufacturers so that they can uh, develop the vaccine and then manufacture large quantities of the vaccine for, to immunize the entire country. Um, and then the federal government then said to the states, okay, we're gonna be in charge of you know, developing this vaccine, you know, paying for that and paying for the um, manufacturing of the vaccine. And then we're gonna distribute it to you all and you all can decide on a state level what you want to do with the doses that you get. So you're going to get a certain number of doses every week. 
Um, and hopefully if the manufacturing increases, we will be able to keep increasing that each week. Um, but then you decide on a statewide level how you're gonna distribute it. And um, so focusing on Massachusetts, uh, the first issue is that the first two vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, need ultra cold storage um, uh, and transport. So they need to be in sub-zero uh, storage and transport at all times, or else because the mRNA um, is fairly um, fragile and in warmer temperatures it breaks down. Um, so if you think about, for example, my clinic, standalone clinic, which is not uh, attached to a hospital, um, we do not have storage capacity, that type of ultra cold storage. We have refrigerators and we have lots of vaccines that we keep refrigerated. Um, and we give out a lot of vaccines in my clinic, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, flu, pneumonia vaccines, HPV vaccines. Um, but they don't need the ultra cold storage. But that, you know, it's funny because primary care is where people are used to getting their vaccines. So of course, many primary care physicians are unhappy that, that, that primary care clinics and offices have not had any supply to be able to give to their patients. On the flip side, you can understand, well, until the Johnson & Johnson vaccine came out, there really wasn't, for most primary care standalone practices, there was not gonna be the proper storage for these, um, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. So we really were not gonna be able to play a big role in um, actually vaccinating our patients in our clinics. I'm, I'm wondering if as the Johnson Johnson vaccine rollout um, continues and more and more Johnson and Johnson vaccine is available, I'm hoping that by this summer, you know, our clinic and others will, will have access to that and we can vaccinate our patients on site. Because the reality is many patients, particularly those who are somewhat vaccine hesitant, are, are probably gonna be persuaded more by their own physician with a one-on-one -on -one conversation um, in person to, to receive the vaccine. Um, the rollout, just thinking about the big picture, there's in Massachusetts, it's been uh, spread out between pharmacies and large mass vaccination sites, which have been run by sort of private and public partnerships, as well as some municipalities have developed their own um, uh, vaccine clinics for, for, for their own town. Um, and healthcare systems like the healthcare system I work for, which is Mass General Brigham, which is the biggest healthcare system in the state, we, the Mass General uh, Brigham healthcare system has gotten a certain amount of supply of, the vac of all the vaccines. And then we have had our, our own um, clinics run by Mass General Brigham. And what they have done to try to distribute the vaccine more equitably amongst our population of patients is they're sending out invitations via um, the patient portal, so via the internet and their email and by phone call to, um, to the patients. And they're focusing on communities that have been hit hardest by COVID and um, 
generally those tend to be some lower socioeconomic communities. And so they are sending uh, sort of a lottery of invitations, but sending more lottery invitations to communities um, and patients in our system that are from communities that have been hard hit by the pandemic more so than uh, other communities. So for example, if you live in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and you're a Mass General Brigham patient, you're more likely to get one of these lottery invitations than if you live in Newton and you are a um, Mass General Brigham patient. They will send invitations to Newton, but a bigger uh, portion of their lottery invitations right now will go to the underserved communities. So that's the Mass General Brigham's effort to make the vaccine distribution more equitable. Many would argue uh, that the states roll out um, starting with age 75 um, is great. Uh, so when they initially were rolling out and saying, okay, the only people eligible right now are healthcare workers, uh, which I think most people agree was reasonable and people over age 75. So many would say, okay, that makes total sense because people who are greater than 75 years old are a much higher risk of a bad outcome if they get COVID. So we need to protect them. They've really suffered, patients in nursing homes, et cetera. Others would say, well, that's true, but that really may not be the most equitable way to distribute the vaccine. Because if you think about it, people of lower socioeconomic class um, who are from some minority communities have been hit extremely hard by this vaccine, by this, uh, by this virus. And we can talk about why that is or what the theories are of why that is. And frankly, their life expectancy is lower than other communities. And so a lot of people that are in their community that are quite vulnerable to COVID-19 aren't even gonna make it to age 75. So what is that really equitable? And I mean, that's a debate you know, we can have. And, and certainly both of those are true statements. Over 75 people are the most vulnerable to bad outcomes with COVID-19. But it is true that these other vulnerable communities, you know, a larger percentage of their, of their community is not even gonna make it to age 75. So if you're starting with that age group, you're missing. A vulnerable, a very another very vulnerable population. So these are really difficult um, questions. Each week that goes by, and we lower the age group, it feels like it's getting a little bit more equitable for everybody. Um, but but again, each week that goes by that we don't catch vulnerable people, we're we're worried about what's going to happen to them. So you spoke about communities that have been hit the hardest by um, the pandemic. Could you speak uh -huh. a bit more to that? And then I also know that vaccine hesitancy within some of those groups has also been a topic of conversation. So maybe you could also touch on that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so the you know communities that have been hit hardest uh, have tended to be uh, communities of color and communities of lower socioeconomic status. And um, and a lot, there's a lot of overlap between uh, those communities, as we know. And there's a lot of theories of, of why this might be. Is it, is it a biological issue? Is it a, based on genetics? Is it based on um, perhaps um, there's a theory about vitamin D or if you're relatively vitamin D deficient, which is 
much more common in people with darker skin tones, for example, um, is a vitamin D deficiency, a vulnerability to catching COVID and also to doing poorly with COVID. We don't know. Um, or is it really more uh, um, having to do with uh, occupation and uh, living conditions and access to healthcare and baseline health, which may be based on you know, how good is, is your diet and your, your access to healthy foods. And if you don't have good access to healthy foods, you're not gonna be as healthy. You may probably are gonna be more overweight, which we're finding that obesity is a significant risk factor for doing poorly with COVID-19. But thinking about occupation, certainly a lot of people who are in lower socioeconomic groups and from certain communities are going, are working uh, more in person and in jobs that require them to be physically present in, at work perhaps working in close proximity to other people rather than having the luxury of being able to work from home and be protected and isolated. Um, and then when you think about living conditions, certainly the smaller your house is and the small, or smaller your apartment is and the more people that have to live in that small space, the more vulnerable everybody in that uh, living situation is going to be to COVID because we know that the, the, the virus spreads when you have close contact with people. Uh, first in a period of time. So household spread is a huge issue. And the more people who live in a small um, apartment or home, the more likely the virus is to be spread. So I think there's a lot of things that we will, again, we're learning and we know so much more now than we did a year ago. Um, but I think those things are pretty clear about the spread having to do with your occupation and how, um, how much you have to work in close proximity to other people in person and um, your living conditions. Um, those are pretty uh, clear that those are risk factors. Um, and there was another part of the question maybe that you're- Yes, um, so I've also read and heard about um, vaccine hesitancy being a little bit higher oh, yeah. among some of those communities. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, if you are in a community that you don't feel the healthcare system has paid enough attention to, or has not um, been as respectful towards you or had the focus of their research and their um, you know, clinical focus that has, has sort of um, not paid attention to your, your group, you're gonna just have less trust in general in the healthcare system. And certainly there are, um, are historical um, incidents where um, minority communities, particularly African-Americans have been used, uh, used essentially as guinea pigs for, um, for um, vaccine uh, trials and, and research. And so that history does not work well with, with, with this. I mean, there's a, there's a it leads to mistrust of the healthcare system. And if you just feel like an outsider, you don't feel like necessarily the healthcare system is speaking to you. So there's, so I think there's some hesitancy for that reason. I think there's vaccine hesitancy among many different types of groups, though, not just minority groups. And, and there's sort of a breakdown of what the vaccine hesitancy um, is all about. Part of it is just kind of normal skepticism. Okay, we're talking about brand new technology and we're talking about 
a brand new vaccine. Just like I um, am an advocate, I love to use medications and prescribe medications to my patients that have been out for a long time. Because you're not gonna have any surprises. You know, 10 years down the road, you're not gonna find out some new surprise about this drug. Um, so it's very reassuring to me and to my patients to know that this is a drug that's been out for a long time. We know what those side effects are and we're probably not gonna have any surprises in 10 years. So I think it's pretty reasonable to have some healthy skepticism about a new technology. And I actually say that to my patients, you know, directly when I'm talking to them about the vaccine for my patients who are a little hesitant when I do see them, they have, they're not quite eligible yet. They're thinking about um, their eligibility is coming up, you know, they're maybe 60 something, but they're not 65 yet. And I say, oh no, I think when you're eligible, you should definitely get the vaccine. And they express me, well, I don't know. I'd kind of like to wait. It's, it's, it's so new, I'm not sure we know everything about it. And I say, you know what, you're absolutely right. I completely agree. I got the vaccine actually fairly early because I'm a healthcare worker, but I'll admit I had some mild hesitancy because I thought, oh, we really don't know anything more much about the long-term data on this. Um, and so I think it is reasonable and we have to actually respect that skepticism, I think. And if you don't address it with people and address it with patients, then they think you're trying to pull something over them. What I tell them is, you're absolutely right. We don't have that data and we're not going to have that data for another 10 years or another five years or whatever time period they're worried about. But what we do know is that we are in, still in the midst of a massive pandemic and that only 10 to 20% of the population maximum has immunity to this virus right now, whether because they were vaccinated or because they had the infection. And so that took a whole year just to get to 10 to 20% immunity. So people don't get the vaccine. We're gonna be in this for five years because if you do 20 times five, that's 100%. Do we really wanna be living in pandemic life for five more years? I don't think so. And in the five years, it's not just the inconvenience of living in pandemic life with masks and everything remote and not seeing people. It's that a lot of people in that five years are gonna die who didn't get the vaccine. And so I just don't think that's acceptable. So I think when we look at risk benefit, we have to say the benefits of taking the vaccine, even though there's some unknowns, we have a lot of good short-term safety data. We don't have a lot of long-term safety data. We just can't, um, but we have to look at what, what we're presented with, the reality that we're living in and say, to me, the, the benefits outweigh the small potential risks down the road. And I have that honest conversation with my patients because I wanna respect their skepticism. So there's that, that's one type of vaccine. So there's the you know, communities that have been somewhat oppressed in our, or have been oppressed in our society and their skepticism because they have not had good experiences with the healthcare system. And then there's sort of this healthy skepticism that lots of different people have. And then there's of course, conspiracy theories, um, which I don't think, need to be respected at all. And they just need to be told that's just not true. And if you wanna read about it and you wanna educate yourself, here you go. Um, but that's gonna be, that's a harder thing to kind of just convince because it's not rational and it's not um, something you're gonna probably be able to talk somebody out of um, who wants to believe in a conspiracy theory. But so those are kind of the categories of vaccine hesitancy that I see. And I think we can combat um, the first two with good strategies to 
reach out to certain communities. Um, and I think having honest conversations with patients and not just saying, hey, it's safe, don't worry about it. I think then, you know, thinking people say, hmm, okay, you're probably right, but, but aren't you worried about the long-term effects? And I just have to admit, yes, I am a little worried, but not worried enough to not take the vaccine because our, our present reality is pretty significant and we need to combat that. Well, I have one more question for you. Um, so for those who are able to overcome their he uh, hesitancy, who are were on board from the get-go um, and decide to get the vaccine, how can we as individuals help create um, a more equitable distribution? Um, just just being people, not, not healthcare workers, not people involved in the government. How can mm -hmm. I, just an 18-year-old person who will hopefully get the vaccine in the future, how, how can I make sure that um, it, it goes in the right order and people get it when they need it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. Um, so I can, I think, you know, if you break it down, you think about, so just on an individual, just you, like you said, as an 18 year old, a high school student or soon to be college student. I mean, I just think the fact there's gonna, you probably take for granted, but there's people who admire you and respect you because they think you're a smart person and that you're a rational person. And if you got the vaccine, um, well, you think it's probably a good idea because you've read about it, you've heard about it, you've tried to educate yourself. And so some vaccine skeptical people, whether they're from any community are gonna, you know, that actually is influential. I mean, I think when people see people they know or trust or like, um, do something, they are more likely to, to, um, to do the same thing. You know, they, they, you know, they're going to follow you. And then I think, um, so beyond just your personal decision about getting the vaccine and sort of making that known that you did that, um, which I think is powerful. Um, certainly uh, not being a healthcare worker, I think working, um, Supporting any groups that are working on on equity issues is is important. Whether that's supporting it with your time and your energy, um, and um, possibly with any financial resources. I'm not expecting at age 18 you have that, but as you got older, you know, working um, to supporting um, organizations that are working on equity, um, and sort of using your your voice and your time and your talents and your energy that way. Um, I, I also think we just have to be respectful of people who are hesitant. I mean, as much as we're trying to push the vaccine so that we can get everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible to reduce the risk of variants and reduce the risk of death and get back to normal, I do think we have to be respectful and not shame people for having hesitancy. Um, and that's hard, I think, in our culture of social media and um, sort of being very polarized, we, we are shaming. We, I think we have to spend more time listening and then quietly educating. And I do think people respond better to that. Um, and if you model the behavior that you want other people to do, that is getting the vaccine and then being respectful, I, I do think that that will, will help. But certainly time, energy, and talent, and money needs to go into bringing the vaccine to communities that are gonna have more difficulty accessing it. So elderly communities, homebound communities, um, 
communities with transportation issues. Um, that that is a that is a big problem. We need to physically bring the vaccine to them. Um, I do think that the homebound people need to have we need to have infrastructure in place so that we can bring it to people's homes and vaccinate people in their homes, vaccinate people where they work. I mean, for grocery store workers, we should be bringing the vaccine to the grocery stores and vaccinating everybody on site. I think the same for teachers. I think the same um, for community centers where people used to and hopefully will continue, will continue to gather. I mean, for, certainly once the vaccines are approved for children, you know, thinking about bringing it to community centers where kids and young people gather or daycare centers or um, schools to immunize kids on site because that is where people ultimately are going to be. Um, and if we, we have to get creative about that and it's labor intensive and time intensive, but I, you know, it's hard to get people to come to appointments in places that are far away from where they live and not part of their daily routine or their daily stops. Um, and expecting people with mobility issues, transportation issues, money issues to travel out of their usual routine is going to be, it's going to be slow, it's going to slow things down. So that's, uh, I would say that those are things to think about um, for, you know, as the next six to 12 months go by. Um, and certainly uh, children under 16 year olds make up a huge part of our population. And, you know, getting all those people vaccinated needs to be thought of and, and, and efficient. And depending on parents who are now just getting back to work, perhaps, or have their own struggles, um, getting them to bring these kids all these appointments, I think it'll be easier if we can bring the vaccine to them. But we'll see how that goes. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. Oh, you are welcome. And this is a pleasure to talk with you. And Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode to learn more about COVID-19 vaccines, and I hope you will join us for our future episodes.